And here we are in the fourth quarter of the year, right? We just started that fourth quarter in our first service as we we're finishing up the year. We want to finish strong. Here on Tuesday nights, we'll be in Nehemiah tonight, so you can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have a Bible, we'll be completing Nehemiah and Esther before we get to Christmas time, thus completing the historical books from this journey that began back in July of 2019 when we began Genesis on the midweek service of Praise the Lord. And as we come to Nehemiah, we come to this, uh, well, it's a book about like doing the work, you know, rise up, get after it, get your hustle on for the Lord and, and, and do the work that needs to be done. I was not that familiar with the book of Nehemiah when I first got saved and then I got called into ministry with Pastor Brian Broderson and I remember going to one of the first pastor's conferences I ever went to with the Calvary Chapel guys, it's like Raul Reese and Greg Laurie and Mike McIntosh and those guys. Jeff Johnson, and it was Nehemiah. They taught Nehemiah, and I just remember thinking, like, what a fascinating book, because I'm a doer, you know, you guys know that. I, I'm an exhorter. I like a vision. I like, let's get it. Let's get going. So Nehemiah is a book that I just naturally gravitate toward, and so I hope as we go through this book over the next uh, month and a half or so that you'll be built up and encouraged as we look at it. The book of Nehemiah is essentially divided in two parts. Chapters 1 through 7 is the building, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 13 is the rebuilding of the people to be a spiritual people inside the walls of Jerusalem. Our timeline is about 445 B.C. And if you recall, the final wave of captives going into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was 586 B.C. So it's been about a you know, it's been a while since the captivity the, happened where the people from Judah were all taken away and Benjamin. And remember, after 70 years, Cyrus gave the decree that the people could return. So that was prophesied by the Lord. And then there is a Rubabal, the priests led that way. And encouraged by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they, they rebuilt and finished rebuilding the temple, a much smaller version, if you will, or just... Not as a magnificent version as the temple that Solomon had built hundreds of years before. So they did that around 535-ish, you know, the the timelines there. Zerubbabel came with the first wave of returning captives. And then eventually, Ezra came with a later wave of returning captives. And so when we just finished the book of Ezra, we started with Zerubbabel and what he was leading in the rebuilding of the temple. Then Ezra came as that expert in the law of God. And so Nehemiah is about 12, 15 years after Ezra. And he's going to go there, not really with a group of captives returning, but he's going to go there on a mission. He's a man on a mission. Now, he's in Susa, which is modern Iran. That's where he's at. He's working in the palace. He's the cupbearer for the king. Very important position. I mean, if you study medieval kings and the history of kings and monarchs, whether it's Eastern culture or you know, Europe and whatnot, people poison each other with food. So the cupbearer has a great responsibility to make sure the king's not getting poisoned. But also the cupbearer would be around the dinner table of important conversations when important people are talking about important things. So they had to be someone very well trusted. In fact, when you look at the various tablets and archaeological finds from the Middle East, you'll find many of them where the cupbearer is in the caricatures or the drawings, if you will, next to the king. They're, it's like the armor bearer, like the right-hand man. Most of you that have ever been in an executive position, you have someone you really trust. That's like your, like your cupbearer. 
So Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king there in Medo-Persia. And that's our background to him. And this is our book. And we begin tonight here in chapter 1, verse 1, as we read how our story sets up here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. That's around October, November. Excuse me, November, December. As I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is our introduction, and we get our first application right off the bat. So he had these friends that had come back from the promised land. Now, from Susa to Jerusalem is about 800 miles. Albuquerque is about 700, right? If you've ever done a road trip on the I-40, you, know, you can do Albuquerque in one day. It's a pretty good haul. If you're going for Amarillo, that's about 1,100. So that's a, I've done both, but I've done it in a car, right? 800 miles is a pretty good, it's a pretty good distance, right? And it's the Middle East with the Fertile Crescent, so you kind of really go up and around. You do more like the horseshoe shape on the trade route. And you got to realize from the time that the Jews went back under Zerubbabel and then with the reformations under Ezra, they had rebuilt that temple and they had the animal sacrificial system. But we, we know history tells us that any city without a wall is vulnerable. You, you never felt safe. You really could never feel safe from marauders, from robbers, and various other things. So what you'd always want to do is have the walls to strengthen your city so you could withstand a siege, and you could close the gates at night, and you would have protection that way. That's, that's what you would do. You'd make a fortified walls and protection. In fact, when I was in Russia a few years back, and I was there on uh, Nizhny Novgorod, which is about 250 miles east of Moscow, and there on the Volga River, I was where the Kremlin, Kremlin means fort in Russian, I was there with this Kremlin, and it was on the river on top of the hill, and it was the walls, the original walls that protected the people going back to like the 1400s, and I went to the monastery that had been there since the 1400s as well, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. And the Volga River comes down from the north, and it was on the right side of the river, so this being north, but it was these incredible walls. And so the monastery was set up there where you could see any, you know, marauders, people come and attack you. You could see them coming down river, and they would sound the alarm from the monastery, and everyone would go behind the walls. They would go behind the walls and be safe in the Kremlin, that's what they would do. It was fascinating history. My one day in Nizhny Novgorod, being a tourist, it was very fascinating to me to, to see history like that. But I saw, I saw the Kremlin there. That's what we're talking about here. They didn't have their Kremlin. If anyone just comes along, they can do what they want to do. They can plunder you. They can take your wives. They can take your wife, your kids. They can take your wealth. There's no safe place for your wealth. That's what it was like. 
And it had been that way for about 150 years, and the resistance to change that had been so strong. We've already seen there was always opposition to build the walls. There was always opposition, and the necessity of building the walls was really part of the identity of the people. And we, say, we just read right here, when Nehemiah asked them, how's it going? He said, the people are in what? Reproach. Because those walls were like the reproach. They, they hadn't done it. Now, back to the time previously, before Nehemiah came, there had been a half-hearted effort to rebuild the walls, but it was shut down by the opposition. See, when, that, when the enemy opposes you, you got to make sure you match their game with your game, especially when you're serving the Lord and you have to fight the devil. It's the Lord's battle, but still, you better, you better bring something to the, to the battle, right? They had failed previously to build the walls. The people were in reproach, and because they're in reproach, they were in distress. And that's just no way for God's people to live, right? We talk about this. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave ascend to the right hand of the Father and ever live and intercede for us with the promise of his return so that we could be in distress and live in reproach. We come from victory. We come from his victory. And we're called to live a victorious life. And there is something about seeing God's people in this Old Testament sense in reproach like this that the, the walls not being built and how they're living in fear just, it represented a defeated life, uh, a settled for less than life than what God really intended for them. And the longer you live like that, the more you accept it as being acceptable to live like that in the Old Testament and even with Christ. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And that's, that's everything. Not free except for this, but free indeed. So as long as we're willing to humble ourselves and receive correction and reproof from the Lord, however it comes, we'll keep growing and going forward. And it's a journey of, it's a liberating journey of freedom from things that would bind us, the anxieties and fears, the devil himself, the fear of the grave, and our own flesh, pride, and lust, right? They're in reproach and distress. What I like about this opening scene, though, is Nehemiah asked, he said, how is it? And when he heard, he was affected by it. We all know there's people who say, like, how are you doing? And you start to tell them, and they're not listening. Right? You, I, we all do that. And sometimes we're thinking about what we're going to say instead of listening to what the other person's saying. I'm notorious for that. And I catch myself doing that all, all the time. I'm really trying hard to train myself to listen when I ask a question to what people are saying and not think about what I'm going to say, but actually listening to what they're saying so I can better understand that person, learn from that person, and encourage that person or receive from that person. Nehemiah is a very powerful person, and he asks his buddies, what's going on? And they said, he, it says he asked, it's right there in verse 2. Verse 1, verse 2, he asked, and I would just remind us all that it's good to ask how people are doing, isn't it? To ask how they're doing. If they tell you there's distress and reproach, don't be surprised. <laughs> Every one of us knows what distress and reproach feels like. We want to ask and we want to care. In Gil Irwin's famous book, The Jesus Style, which I read years ago, decades ago, it really impacted me early on in ministry because the thing about The Jesus Style book, it's a classic for Calvary Chapel pastors particularly, and he wasn't even a Calvary Chapel pastor, but he's Pastor Chuck's good friend, is that in The Jesus book you realize 
and what he emphasizes over and over again, because he was a pastor, Assemblies of God, is that it's all about others. It's always about others. Business is about others. Sales is about others. But most importantly, the kingdom of God is about others. So it's just a reminder, like, this reminds me, like, hey, ask people how they're doing. Ask. Ask your wife how she's doing and listen when she answers. Ask your husband how he's doing. If you're married, listen when he answers. Ask your coworker that's being broody or moody or upset. Maybe on your break, ask them how they're doing. The one person I led to a prayer of faith in Jesus Christ back in Vermont, 14, years of my, 14 months of my life there in Burlington, Vermont, Owen the dishwasher, I led him in a prayer to receive Christ because I asked him a question. He was coming down the stairs. I was going up the stairs to go to work. And I said, how are you doing, Owen? And he says, not that good. The conversation would have never happened. I'm going up the stairs, coming down the stairs. Vermont would have been a meaningful time in my life of ministry for 14 months anyways, but it's a little more meaningful when just one person receives Christ for everything you gave up to go there and do that. I mean, that one person. And I asked him, he said, not that good. I said, would you like to get together and go to lunch? And he said, yes, I would. That's how it worked. Just a reminder in our busyness, because it's so busy. Our lives are so busy in general, and particularly in Orange County in Southern California. It's just like there's 10 tabs moving all the time. And you sometimes don't even know why. And if you don't slow it down intentionally, then you just won't slow it down. So we need to slow it down intentionally, not, not for us and just the person in the mirror, but to, to really care about the people we share planet Earth with in our timeline that we're sharing it with. So it's just a good reminder to ask, to care, to be sensitive, to ask and listen, and, and be impacted by what people say in their response. And Nehemiah was. Because when the answer came, he sat down, he wept, and he mourned. And, you know, there's times when you're going through heavy stuff, and there are people, there's a friend that sticks closer to a brother, as it says in Proverbs. And there are people, sometimes when you're sharing something that's really going on in your life, a loss of a loved one, or a failure in your life, or getting let go, or a financial disaster or something, it's a wonderful thing when someone looks at you, and they look at you with tears in their eyes, that they're empathetic. That you can, you, can, you can tell when people are sympathetic because they can relate because they've been through it, or empathetic they can relate because they simply care and understand as best they can. Jesus is about others. Even through the Gospels, as we're going to be looking at Matthew on Saturday nights, and are looking at Matthew, he asks people, like, what do you seek? What's, what do you want? What would you like me to do for you? It's about others. It, it really is about others in Jesus' name. So I just remind myself and I remind all of us, Nehemiah is a very powerful person, but he's not too powerful to ask his friends, hey, what's going on? And he's not so busy about being the king's right-hand man and places to go, people to see, that he can't just stop, have tears, weep, and mourn. Tells us a lot about the man right here, what kind of man he was. He was a godly man. He was a tender-hearted man, too, and he cared about other people enough that he's crying. He's not crying about losing his job. He's not crying about conflict with his wife. He's not crying about uh, money that he's lost with a bad investment or someone wronging him 
like we see with Haman and Esther. He's crying because of the distress and reproach of God's people. That's powerful. Verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now. Day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, implying the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. Here in verses 5 through 11, Nehemiah, after sitting down, weeping, and mourning and fasting and praying, all in verse 4 there, we read here time and time again, association of prayer. Verse 5, and so I prayed, Lord God of heaven. And then he says that you may uh, you hear, hear the prayer of your servant and then confession for himself, the people, everybody. He's checking every box. Verse 8, I pray, remember what you spoke to Moses. So now he's going to the promises of God that God had made in the, in the law of God back in Deuteronomy and Exodus. And he's like, ah, and, and again, he's like, Lord, you redeemed us by your power, your strength. It's all about you. Oh, Lord, uh, I pray, please, and be attentive to the prayer and let your servant prosper this day, I pray. So he, it's prayer, prayer, prayer. I mean, obviously, these verses are all 5 through 11. It's all about prayer. But in that prayer, there's confession. There's brokenness. There's intercession for the others. He's quoting the promises of God to God. And he's, he's, he's crying out to the Lord. It's good to have a tender heart, as I mentioned previously on the first four verses, to want to pray for other people. And, and I've mentioned this. It's, it's a 10-year anniversary today that Pastor Chuck stepped into eternity, you Calvary Chapel people, right? It's 10 years to the day that Pastor Chuck went to glory. Praise God. Ten years. What I thought about today when I saw people posting this on Instagram, different Calvary pastors with Pastor Chuck, um, my first thought was, I wonder what it will be like ten years after I'm gone. I suppose that sounds a little selfish, doesn't it? But it made me realize that life goes on when you're gone. I mean, ten years later, Chuck's been in glory for ten years. He's in another dimension in glory. And here we are ten years later. We've weathered economic challenges, the COVID challenge, government challenge, all these different things we've weathered. Like, hey, the Lord's the Lord. The church is here. We're here. We're going verse by verse through Nehemiah. And Christmas is coming once we clear Halloween. Right? Life goes on. Life goes on. And... It's good to have a heart for prayer. And thinking about Pastor Chuck today, I've mentioned this before, but one of the very first books I ever read was Effective Prayer Life by Pastor Chuck Smith. This is a very simple book. You can just get it. It's easy to get a hold of. But 
As a whole, I've had a very simple faith my whole journey in 35 years with Jesus. And what I love about effective prayer life is that it's just so simple. And what I always remember Pastor Chuck saying in that book is that you can change the world from your bedroom. If you get on your knees or you just pray standing up or sit and pray however you pray, but if you come with believing prayer and you take God's promises at face value and you pray and you plead, you, you got to, you know, God, God's going to move and he wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. And I always remember early on when I first got saved in 1987, I prayed, thanked the Lord for my food, helped me not to be lustful, and uh, helped me not to be greedy for waves in the ocean with the other surfers. That's a pretty simple worldview, right? Hey, thank you for the food. Help me not to be that guy and help me not to be too big of a jerk in the water. But as I began to grow in faith and see the Lord do stuff, then my prayers took on deeper meaning. They took a, you know, they went to a better place, a broader place. Those are still good prayers, by the way. Those prayers will do you well. But like to really stand in the gap and pray for other people. Like, for example, today I was praying for the Calvary Chapel Coast of Mason missionaries. I hadn't done that for a while, but I opened the book randomly and I started praying for some missionaries and I'm like, yeah, we're, we're changing the world right now. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's changing the world. He's praying, he's interceding, and he's changing the world. But what's interesting about Nehemiah, so we can all, all of us in Jesus' name, we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. We can come as intercessors, like God said through Ezekiel. I look for someone to stand in the gap. We can be that woman. We can be that man. We can. We can be that person, for sure. But what's interesting about Nehemiah's prayer is he actually is in a position to do more about it. He, he can actually do more about it. Because that last phrase, he's the cupbearer, and he's praying for favor, favor from his boss, who's the big boss of all bosses on planet Earth at that time. So he, he, this is a perfect scenario in that we, we all want to have a tender heart to pray and care about other people. We can check that box. But not all of us have the position or resources to actually do something profound logistically about it. And in his case, he does. In other words, we don't have, all have access to the king on a daily basis or the trust of the king who has all that power. But Nehemiah does. He's in a position to do a little more. And, you know, we think of what the Bible says to to the one who has, more will be given. And, and uh, the one who has, it will be required of them. And God gives some of us a little more opportunity than other people. Maybe our intellect, our skill set. Um, could be various things that just we have. Some of us, I think being an American citizen and even being in this country gives you much better chances than most people around the world. Wouldn't you agree? It's still the best country pretty much that you could want to immigrate to for opportunity. We are a land of opportunity, and we're blessed. I think about what, what position God's given you that you can prosper in to serve and bless other people in Jesus' name. Because surely he's given every one of us a position. Our life is a position right now. And in that position, we have interest and opportunities to pray for favor and blessings to prosper for the kingdom of God and to advance the kingdom of God. Surely that exists for all of us in this room tonight. You may not be the king's cupbearer and have access to the man that has all the wealth or the woman that has all the wealth. But, you know, if you think about it, it's good to ask ourselves tonight in application, what, what is my position? Think about Esther. When she saved her people 
And Mordecai, her uncle, said to her, for such a time as this, Esther 4.12, who's not to say that God hasn't made you the queen for such a time as this? You are the, you're the orphan, and you won the beauty pageant, and you're his wife, and there's a decree that's going to exterminate our people. And who's not to say that God hasn't put you and raised you up your whole life for such a time as this, Esther 4.12. But I love what Mordecai said after that. Even so, know this, if you don't go risk your life, deliverance will come for God's people. So it's really our opportunity. It's our opportunity. I just remind us tonight as we begin the fourth quarter of 2023 that you are somebody's cupbearer and you are in a citadel somewhere and there are opportunities there that maybe we haven't thought of through your prayer life that God can move things and make things happen for you to do things you didn't even think of. So we want to ask how people are doing and we want to listen and we want to care. And we want to pray like we really mean it and doing serious business with effective prayer life with the living God who moves mountains for those who believe. But we also want to realize that we have positions that God's placed us with opportunity. Even if it's just passing, even if it's just one person that's minimum wage, passing another person that's minimum wage, like me and Owen the dishwasher. How's room service Joe? Passing Owen the dishwasher. That, that God would give us favor and, and prosper us. You are the cupbearer somewhere, and what you want is God to give you favor and prosper you there for his kingdom, for his work, because that's what's going to matter in eternity. Now we read on in chapter 2. Coming forward from being the cupbearer, we read this. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before, therefore the king uh, said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city that is the place of my father's tombs lies waste? In waste, it's waste, its, its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I say to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the regions beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the, captains, the king's letters. Now the king had set captains of the army and horsemen with me, when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So this role of cupbearer opens these doors. Now, it says it was in this other month, in the month of Nisan. That's uh, March, April. So basically from the time that Nehemiah asked how's it going, what's happening, he sat on it for four months. So he, he sat out through our holiday season, right? Like he sat on it. 
and gave it thought and consideration. And he didn't take the initiative. He waited for the Lord to open that door. And then suddenly the Lord opened that door. Now, it'd be very risky to be moping around in front of the king. That could work against you, just like Esther going before the king when you're not allowed to. But the king read the situation, and God did give gave Nehemiah favor. But in finding favor before the king that day from the Lord, it's, it's, it, it stands out how well-prepared Nehemiah was for the moment, isn't it? Like, he was ready. Like, when the king said, what do you want? I'll tell you what I want. <laughs> e, all the above. I want to go for this amount of time, and this is the objective of the task that we're going to do. This is the work we're going to get done. And I also want a letter that says, no one messes with me or my crew when we're in transit. Now, remember, Ezra didn't ask for that, and he said he was too embarrassed to ask for it because he just told the other king, hey, we have faith. So in his case, he didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. In Nehemiah's case, like, hey, I want a letter saying these guys can't mess with me. He wasn't messing around. The first time I went to Russia, it was a tourist visa. And the last thing I want to do, especially what we saw with what happened to Brittany Griner, is go to Russia. Remember the basketball player, Brittany Griner? Right? She had hashish oil in a vape and went to jail for nine months in Russia. The famous basketball player, women's basketball player. When you go to Russia, you don't have the same <laughs> rights you have in America. You, un you understand me? Yeah. So when I went the first time, I had a tourist visa. Remember, it was a miracle. I got it like in one week, and the next thing I know, I'm at a pastor's conference two weeks later. It was amazing. But I was very careful with that not to teach. Because FESBA, which is like uh, the KGB, FESBA, is the domestic surveillance police like CIA or FBI. They were, they were known to hang out at the Calvary Chapel. So I'm like, hey, I'm not. <laughs> My mom, last thing she said to me, was like, Joe, don't you preach at Red Square. Don't you get thrown in, in the, you'll, they'll send you to the gulags is what they'll do. So I couldn't help but think of my Catholic mom telling me, don't, don't do it. But I didn't need my mom to tell me that. The Lord was telling me, don't do it. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't called to teach at that conference. I was praying and observing. Now, when I went to Siberia and I shared my testimony, that was different. I was sharing my testimony. But I had a visa and I didn't want to be leaving the country and be jeopardizing that and get flagged. So when I came back before COVID hit, remember I got I applied for the I can do everything visa. I applied, I paid extra money, and I applied for the visa that says I can go to Russia, I can preach, I can I can do all these things, and I asked for everything. And I got it. That's what made COVID so difficult for me. I was working on my Russian language every day for 16 months. Kept waiting for it to open up, and the COVID thing just kept going on and on and on. And my visa expired. It was one of those disappointments in life, top five for sure. I was like, wow. But I asked for everything, and I had the everything visa. It's, that passport's still valid. So if I go anywhere right now, I've got the I can do anything I want in Russia visa that never got used because the border was closed. Nehemiah asked for everything. All authority, all access, VIP pass, all access pass. Nobody messes with me. Uh, I get the guy, he knew who the guy was that was in charge of all the asset wealth, all the timber, the guy that runs Ganal Lumber, Home Depot, that guy. He, he, I know the guy, and I, I, 
I want all of it. He had a rough idea how much timber it would require, how much. He, he asked not only the permission to do the job, he asked for the stuff to get it done with. And then he said, I want stuff for my house too, because I'm going to need somewhere to live. <laughs> my house. Yeah, he's checking all the boxes, and he's not messing around. He's a man with a tender heart to the Lord that cares about other people. He's got big faith in a big God, and he's going big. I haven't told the story for a while, but before we started this church, I was on that flight with Southwest Airlines right over Catalina, coming out of John Wayne Airport, and the flight attendant came by and said, would you like some, some nuts, some peanuts, whatever? I hadn't eaten, and I was starving. And I was like, yeah, I would. In fact, can I get two bags? of the peanuts. Kind of random. Like, can I get two? So sure. She walks away, comes back, and it's a plastic bag with like 30 bags of peanuts, like Southwest Airlines peanuts in it. And she throws a whole bag at me. And I've got the window seat and the person sitting next to me like, what's that all about, you know? And uh, she laughs. She goes, you can have them all. And I laughed and I looked out the window and the Lord said, don't dumb me down. When you ask from me, see, Joey, some people think they, I'm only going to give them one bag of peanuts, and that's what they'll settle for. Some people ask for two bags of peanuts because they have a little bit more faith. He says, I want you to ask for everything, all of it. That's what I want you to do. I want you to see me as the one who goes above and beyond anything you could ask. I held on to those peanuts for a long time. I mean, until they were past even being used for the end of the world apocalypse food. I mean, they, they kept making the cut, but then eventually, like, yeah, I got to throw these. Jennifer's like, the peanuts, they got to go. You know, like that kind of thing. But at the beginning of this ministry, when we started this church, now you go back to COVID, and you think of, like, over 400,000 going to the mission field all over the world, all these missionaries who were short-ended with finances during COVID and stretched. Many missionaries came home and never went back. What we did, I reflect now on what we did and the money people gave with extra gifts and offerings that we put all out there that we allowed people who were passing that test to stay in the field, and they did. And some had to come home. We, we made it easier for them coming home because sometimes the harder thing than staying in the field is to come home and reboot your life with nothing after being serving the Lord in the, in the missionary field. Ask for all of it. I'm always asking. I'm asking every day for a lot right now for this church, for my personal life. I hope you're asking for a lot. Again, in the Pastor Chuck mode today on the 10-year anniversary of glory, big God, little problems. Little God, big problems. Big God. God's able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask for his glory in his church. Whereas William Carey, the great missionary, said, attempt great things from God, expect great things from God. And that's who we want to be, and I say this all the time. If, if the Lord doesn't show and do great things, I don't want to be, to be because I didn't believe he could and I didn't match it with the hustle that he would want from me. And if he changes the water pot from water to wine, I want to make sure I filled it to the brim. A reference to the wedding feast in Cana there in John chapter 2. Because they said, fill the water pots and they filled them to the brim, it says. And then he turned it into wine. I think some people go like, well, and the Lord said do this, but I, you know, let's get the backyard garden hose. Let's just fill up halfway. The Lord's like, well, like you could add the full thing, but you just set up for half a thing because you only met me halfway there. We don't want to come up short. 
Nehemiah had his hustle on. He had vision. He had faith. He wasn't messing around. The king's like, what can I do for you? He's like, everything. 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 Maybe in the back of his mind, he thought, for 150 years, no one's been able to solve this problem. I'm going to Jerusalem to rebuild that wall. And all those bandits and robbers on the way and all those people that think they're in charge of everything, representing the king there in the promised land, I got one thing to say to them. Lead, follow, or get out the way. Because he's not messing around. Sambal and Tobiah, they're like, he's like, what? They're like hecklers at a sports game at a road game, and they're like, what? Not even, not even phased. These guys, he never takes the bait. We'll see more of them as we go forward in the book, but he's like, what? Who are you guys? Get out of here. Literally, just beat it. He's got, he's got, he asks for everything, he's got everything. So this reminds us that think big, be big, pray big. When the king says, what do you want? Go big. Believe big. Now, in the context, it's for others. It goes back to the very beginning. It's for others. It's for others. Eternal perspective, eternal kingdom, glory, things that transcend this dimension. Go big. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night with a few men with me, and I, I told no one that my... Uh, what God, my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuge gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, uh, th- but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I so returned, and the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I'd done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we're in? He made it a we, you catch that. How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's word, words that uh, he had spoken to me. And so they said, let us arise and build. And then they set their hand to do this good work. But when Samballat, the Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, uh, Yeshim, the Arab, heard of it, they, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise, arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. It's not a long conversation. <laughs> I picture almost like two football players after a play, you know, when they're chirping, they got their helmets against each other. There's not much to say. He doesn't, he doesn't take the bait. Time and time again, they're going to try and bait him. He doesn't react, he responds. That's what we see from Nehemiah. He's, he, he, he didn't get to become the king's bearer, cup bearer, to be a person that can't control his emotions and react because manipulative people who are of unbelief and opposed to you push their buttons. He didn't get to be his pay grade by letting people like that, small-minded people, pull him out of his lane and get him off his game from what he's called to do with the Lord. I love that. Now, we see a couple keen things with him as a leader, because he really shows his leadership here. I personally feel very 
challenged by a few things here in just reading this, but it says he kept the matter to himself. This is probably one of my biggest problems. I tend to, I tend to tell everyone what I'm going to do. And I, and I do most of it, but sometimes I don't, and then I feel foolish, right? Well, you know what that's like? So the proverb says the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And we talk about this. Talk is cheap. A finished product, the end of a matter is better than the beginning. When, when what you've done is finished and is polished, or you know, it's not a rough sketch, you know, they say you have one first impression, right? When, when you, and this is his first impression, you lay it out. You don't, you don't go into the board and present a sloppy presentation like, hey, go in there, check your boxes, know your metrics, have the vision, keep it simple, articulate the vision, like what God said to Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain, so whoever reads it can read it, understand it, and run with it. Less is more. That's why I talk about trying to formulate any thoughts that I have for any vision and any ideas in 25 words or less. And you can be sure Jesus Christ probably starts it, and Jesus Christ probably ends it, and the word glory is used at least once. So that leaves me 20 words left. But it helps me. Less, simplicity, clarity. In your own mind, that you can follow and that you can articulate to other people. So he told no one what was in his, in his heart. He didn't tell them what he's doing cruising around in the middle of the night doing the graveyard shift on, on a donkey, checking everything out. But man, he was, man, he, he's like these managers for Caltrans in the middle of the night, right? As we're watching the freeway for three years and a couple more maybe getting done, but it's getting done. Hey, somebody's gotta be out there at three in the morning that knows what they're doing, yes and amen? Because we're going to be driving across all these bridges for the next 30 years, plus our kids and our kids' kids. There's someone getting paid a lot of money who's telling people what to do at 3 in the morning on the 405 right now in Orange County. That's Nehemiah. And as he's seeing everything, he's checking it out. It's in his heart. He's like, he's holding the cards close to the vest. He's got a big vision. He's going to attempt to do and successfully do what no one's been able to do for 150 years. And he's going to do it in less than two months. He's that guy, or she's that girl, right? That's who he is, but he's holding it to the best. You got to appreciate that. There's a time to hold it close, and there's a time to lay it out. Just refine it, refine it, refine it, and keep it simple. We also see that he viewed everything, so he assessed it. He, he went and saw every aspect of the project. This side of the, this part where the wall was destroyed, this here, this gate burned out, this thing. And, you know, he's got probably got a metrics kind of mind, so it's all like data in his mind. He's just breaking it down. How much lumber from Grinnell and Home Depot do we need from the King's thing and his forest and this and that. And, man, the wheels are turning. He's getting it done. So he's got the vision, keeps it to himself. Then he assesses what needs to be done. And then he goes to the leaders and he says, hey, now, they probably know he's the cupbearer. But isn't it nice when someone comes with a vision and can't actually execute the plan? He's going to get it done. And so effective is his leadership, he identifies with their reproach and distress. You notice we got the same words again from chapter 1, reproach and distress. And he says, we. Because he took it personal as the people of God. He identified with the people there. And he simply says, let us... Let us do this. And his leadership is inspiring. His presence is inspiring. And we read, they said, let's rise up and build. They were, they, they were ready. 
And sometimes that's all people need is to see someone who really believes in God, really believes in the promises of God, and really means business about doing the work of God. Any of us can be that person. If people know that we're, we're serious about our faith, and we're serious about who God is and what he can do, and we're putting faith, feet to faith, that's going to inspire people. So we close tonight with this thought, how much can we inspire others? We can learn a lot from Nehemiah because his presence and how he carried himself was so inspiring that when he said, hey, here's the vision, they were, they were running out the door to get it done. I want to be that kind of person for Jesus in the Great Commission, don't you? For the kingdom of God? And if you don't, you want to be because trust me, that's all that's going to matter when we step into glory and eternity, right? So be encouraged, be built up. Here we go. We're out the gate with Nehemiah. Yes and amen.